0: Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all. From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Tim Descher, and this is Heritage Explains. If you're on social media, I'm sure at some point we've all been in the same conversation. I'm joined by my friend Frank to help demonstrate how it typically goes. Hey Frank, how's it going, man? Dude, check it out. I just got into a massive fight on Facebook. Oh man, that's terrible. Why? Well,
1: Tom posted a story, as he always does, that was so biased and wrong. This time I just had to correct the record. And, well, from there it just went all downhill. I should should probably take a break from social media. Yeah,
0: might be a good idea. You think you'll actually take a break? No, probably not. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, that's because social media accommodates an incredible amount of speech. They're able to do this because they're shielded by Section 230 of the Communications and Decency Act of 1996. It says in part, quote, No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. You confused? Basically what it's saying is, it's a big shield for social media sites against liability for what our new friends Frank and Tom were fighting about. It also allows companies to remove content at their own discretion with very little recourse. It's been said that the 26 words in Section 230 built the Internet. But like most things in D.C., get ready for drama, especially when these big companies like Facebook, Twitter and Google start choosing sides on what content should stay and what should go.
1: The whole idea of giving social media this liability protection was that these companies would be bulletin boards. Everybody could just put their ideas and their opinions on a quote-unquote bulletin board, but that's not how it has progressed. These companies have chosen a side. Twitter decides <laughs> to flag tweets by President Trump and leaves the Ayatollah Khomeini up there saying death to America.
0: Just think back over the past year alone. How many times did we hear about certain conservative posts on social media being removed? How many times did we hear the left complain about fake news? Clearly, Google, Facebook, Twitter, and other tech firms have squandered the public trust with inconsistent and often political moderation and censorship of user content. Senator Ted Cruz and many like him agree. We're seeing Silicon Valley billionaires, frankly, drunk with power. The crux of this situation hinges on Section 230, and many people on the left and the right are calling for it to be either revised or removed entirely. So what is the right move? Should we get rid of Section 230 as several major politicians like President Trump and former Vice President Biden are calling for? Can we find a middle ground? Or maybe we just leave it alone and let the market handle the situation. On this episode, we talk with our friend Klon Kitchen. He's the director of the Center for Tech Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. This week, he tells us why Section 230 must be carefully refined to fit its original intent and better prevent potential abuses of this protection. He calls for us to mend it. Not ended. More on that after this break. Conservative women, conservative feminists. It's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics. Search for problematic women wherever you get your podcasts. Klon, we know what 230 is. Um, We know that it started as a a broad liability shield for an online company's presence basically you know lawmakers wanted to keep the internet from becoming the worst part of itself now the courts have interpreted it very broadly you know we're getting calls from the right that we should totally abolish section 230 because content moderation is too extreme and then we're getting voices from the left that says scrap it and start over because we aren't doing enough content moderation In your new report, which I'm going to link to, you say, mend it, don't end it. I guess, sort of just looking for the middle ground. So start with the good of Section 230. What is the good that we need to preserve of it?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think you're exactly right. So Section 230 has provided protections that that have enabled a type of innovation that is, frankly, unparalleled in, I think, human history. Um, It has created entire um, economic market segments um, and it has given rise to much of what you and I understand and enjoy about the the modern internet. Um, But as you say, um, the original intent of Section 230 uh, has now morphed into a much broader liability shield Uh, And is having some pretty significant um, impacts on us as a society. So, as you mentioned, you've got these these kind of polar opposites. Uh, You've got some groups saying we should uh, leave it alone; that 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 Section Two Thirty is sacrosanct. And you've got others who say we should scrap it completely uh, because it's not being it's it's allowing people not to enforce content moderation more aggressively. And uh, we think both of those extremes are actually. suboptimal approaches. And that's what this paper lays out is what we think is a better course of action of realizing the benefits of Section 230, while also trying to mitigate against some of its um, potential extremes.
0: Yeah, talk about the potential extremes, more of the negative parts of 230 that we've actually seen. Um, paint a little picture of that.
1: Well, I think generally speaking, one of the realities is is that, and and this is actually a bipartisan consensus, I think, is that Companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter and other tech firms have, have frankly, squandered the public trust with inconsistent and often political moderation and, and censorship of, of user content. So both sides of the political aisle feel as though they have been abused uh, by these companies. The companies themselves, frankly, are incoherent in the way that they uh, apply these rules. They do a terrible job of explaining themselves. Um, you know, sometimes they... They, they take these actions and they, they strike kind of a moral posture and they talk about right side of history arguments. Other times they try to use kind of legalese justifications where, you know, they kind of get into these nitinoid justifications as well. It was actually this and not that. And you know, the, the individual merits of those conversations are, you know, multitude and, and difficult to navigate sometimes. But the bottom line is, is that these companies have forfeited uh, a great deal of, of the public trust. And so you know, for a lot of conservatives, they feel like they can't get onto these platforms and, um, you know, and engage f- fairly.
0: You talk about that there's a, a good faith standard in Section 230. You know, that's that's something that we're trusting companies to go by. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners, like you were alluding to, are saying, yeah, but when it comes to conservative content, it's way more regulated than left-leaning content is. You know, in fact, many studies would suggest that that is actually the case. So, what explain this good faith standard a little bit more?
1: Yeah, so the the provision that allows um, the the liability protection that you and I are discussing is preceded by it says, look, if if, if an online company wants to enjoy these benefits, then they have to act in good faith. And good faith is a amorphous, you know, kind of broad legal term that is that is currently undefined, but it essentially means, look, you have to act in a way that is fair and, and impartial across your user base um, and is not intended to disenfranchise or otherwise harm any one subset of your user base. So the idea is like, look, these companies can establish whatever content moderation rules they want. If Twitter ultimately decides it doesn't want to host conservative content, they can. Um, or if they're not going to allow, you know, pro life ads, they they can make that choice. They're a private company. They can do that. But if they're going to make those choices, those content moderation decisions have to be enforced equally across the spectrum. Such that if, uh, you know, a, a Democrat group were were to, you know, take a, you know, this sounds crazy now, but if they were to take a, a, uh, a pro-life ad out or something like that, then then they would also have to be uh, affected in the same way that a conservative group is. So the, the point is, is that good faith is demonstrated by um, a, a application of the rules in a way that is explicitly not intended to disenfranchise any one group, whether it be a political group or social group or, you know, whatever way you want to define that group.
0: Yeah. Many lawmakers um, seem to conflate issues. Um, You hear the term antitrust thrown around. You hear, you know, um, we need to break these big tech companies up because this is where I mean, basically, I mean, in today's day and age, you can't be a participant in the market if you aren't on or or a part of social media. So why in, in your in your report, you talk about not conflating the issues. Why not talk about antitrust in this?
1: Well, because it's, it's a, frankly, it's a, it's a wholly separate issue. So antitrust has to deal with how these companies operate as businesses and whether or not they are illegally using um, economic or market control to constrain um, competition. Um, And so many of these companies are currently being investigated and are possibly going to deal with antitrust uh, charges by the Department of Justice. And we're, you know, we're going to engage that and are engaging that. We think there are principles that come into play. But Section 230 is, is not that. So oftentimes what can happen is groups on both sides of the political aisle will offer positions like, hey, we should use antitrust and just break these guys up. And it's often offered from a position of political grievance rather than kind of strict policy analysis. In other words, look, they feel hurt by these companies. And if antitrust is a club that they can use to kind of compel these companies to get back in line, they reach for it. It is easy to empathize with that kind of frustration. But from a policy standpoint, that is an unwise approach when we're talking about an industry that constitutes nearly 7%. Of U.S. gross domestic product and nearly forty percent of the S and P five hundred, so it's it's just not a it's not a good way to go. There are better ways, and that's what we offer in this paper.
0: Yeah, we talked a little bit earlier about just the 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 conservative movement, um, differentiating ways of dealing with Section two hundred and thirty. You know, obviously, there's disagreement on the left as well. You know, many argue that these are private companies. They have no obligation to be fair. They, 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 you, you use the company, that's your choice. Um, they can provide whatever service they choose. And then the others say, you know, the opposite of that. How do, how do we reconcile this? You know, you say we need to mend it, not end it. So, so with Section 230, where is that
1: middle ground? It is really important that we remember that what we're talking about is a liability protection, which is a benefit, and the lack of this protection is not a penalty. So this benefit is only given to online sources. Real world newspapers, bulletin boards, other similar sources don't have these kind of protections. And for now, we think that bestowing such a benefit makes sense. But, you know, Andy McCarthy has actually observed, he says, you know, Section 230 immunity is a legal privilege to be earned by compliance with the attendant conditions. If an entity fails to comply... That just means it does not get the privilege. It does not mean that the entity is being denied a right or being punished, end quote. So the point is, is like, look, the and we agree with this, but the government has decided that there is a benefit in giving some, some protection to enable companies primarily to take down some of the worst content on the internet without fear of being sued into oblivion. We think that's generally a good policy outcome. And so we're happy for to have Section 230 there as, as a protection. But if a company wants to exercise their right to conduct themselves in a way that, for example, isn't good Samaritan, right? Well, then that's fine, they can do that, they have the freedom to do that, but that means that we're not willing to extend to them the protections of Section 230, and that's a fine deal.
0: You don't have to get too deep here in terms of exact policy recommendations, but what sort of changes are we looking for? And most importantly, do you think there's an appetite
1: to pursue these changes? Uh, so in terms of what we're trying to do, we're trying to clean up the language. We're trying to define terms that need better definition. We're trying to remove terms that we find to be problematic or just overly opaque and not helpful. And we're trying to insert um, some new sections that we think are more relevant. I mean, this was really originally written in the early 90s. So the internet is just fundamentally different. And what we're trying to do is, is update Section 230 so that it's actually relevant to the internet that we all know and en- enjoy. So, you know, we, we talk about that. At the same time, we also want to make sure that these companies are still incentivized and protected when they go after terrorism content, child sex abuse, cyber stalking, that kind of stuff. So we don't want any of that to kind of fall off the plate as we're trying to fix it.
0: Yeah. So what's the appetite like for, uh, for moving forward on, on language reforms
1: like this? I think it's highly likely that Section 230 is going to have some type of legislative change within the next 12 months. Both sides of the political aisle want to do it. The new administration is going to uh, push for this. There's going to be political desire for action. And I think that uh, what we're trying to do here is now kind of set the guardrails so that any action that is taken is taken within them uh, and that we don't accidentally uh, incur some unintended consequences uh, by not being more careful. So what
0: are some of the potential impediments that you see in getting this done? In my head, you know, lobbying is a big deal in, in D.C. You know, some of these um, big tech companies have significant resources um, flowing into Washington, D.C. Do do you see that as a potential uh, roadblock to getting
1: reforms to this? So I don't think it will be a roadblock. I do think it'll be a key variable. So most of the, of the big companies see the writing on the wall and recognize that Section 230 is going to get changed. Um, different companies are adopting different postures as to kind of how they approach that. What is going to happen is there's going to be a flood of money and influence uh, from the Valley into D.C. talking about all these things. Um, some of those... Changes uh, will will coincide with what we're recommending. Some of them will not, and and to the degree that we think that this influence is is pushing legislation in the wrong way, Heritage is already committed and already engaged in trying to um, to shape that and, and prevent that from prevailing. Because as you know as you as you quoted from the paper we're trying to hold a couple of things in tension we are trying to fan the flames of economic freedom we we like a free market we want these companies in one sense to thrive uh, economically because that allows us to thrive as a nation at the same time we're also trying to protect individual and corporate freedom of speech and these things don't have to be in as significant attention as they sometimes feel like they are but doing that requires being really careful and sophisticated about how we refine Section Two Thirty.
0: Talk about a potential President Biden on this issue. Do you see him proactively pursuing something like this, um, or or is it more going to be driven by Congress and it's kind of just a bill set on his desk? What what does that look like? That variable.
1: Uh, so in terms of the specific legislative process. Um, there are a number of, of bills that have been offered by Congress already. Many of them just aren't that good. Um, from what I've seen from, from uh, Biden is that uh, he has identified Section 230 as being a problem. He, his commentary up until this point has largely centered around just kind of getting rid of it, just kind of killing it all. Um, but that may change when it comes to the kind of practicalities of actually getting legislation passed and that kind of thing. I think the Congress in general understands that this is a problem that needs to be managed not one that's kind of like thrown out the window. Uh, But some of the loudest voices on section 230 tend to offer more extreme responses. Uh, So I think when it comes down to practical legislating, we're going to land closer to what we're uh, recommending, but there will definitely be voices both in industry in Congress and potentially in the White House, maybe offering, uh, you know, a more aggressive posture.
0: Kwan, thank you so much for this report. And uh, thanks for being with us this week. It's my pleasure. And thank you so much for being a loyal listener to Heritage Explains. We really appreciate hearing from you. Send us an email at managingeditor@heritage.org. You could also leave us a comment wherever you listen to the podcast. Also, don't forget to log into the show notes because I've linked to Klon's report and a couple other resources for you to gain more context on this issue. Thank you so much for sharing us with your friends, your family. It helps us grow and it helps us continue to spread the word on great conservative policy solutions. Michelle's up next week and we'll see you then.
1: Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation.
0: It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by John Pop.